0: Welcome to London Calling You, a podcast from the EU delegation here in the UK. Last time we looked at the long entwined relationship between the EU and the UK in the world of wine. Today we're looking at a subject that is of greatest concern to both sides of the channel. The efforts in policy, industry and activist circles to tackle the enormous sustainability challenges facing the world of textiles and fashion. I'm Bella Webb, the sustainability editor of Vogue Business. Bringing the fashion industry in line with social and environmental justice movements underlines a lot of my work. Now, it's the focus of policymakers too. The EU has just launched its Reset the Trend initiative to reach new audiences and spread the message of the work being done, which we will come on to in a moment. But first, let's introduce our expert panel. First up, we have Catherine Salvage, who is the Strategic Technical Manager for Textiles at Leading Climate Action NGO, RAP. We also have Lisa Lang, Director of Policy and EU Affairs Orchestrator at EIT Climate Kick. Shamit Ghosh, who is the CEO and co-founder of traceability platform TrustTrace. And Carrie Summers, co-founder of fashion advocacy organisation, Fashion Revolution. Now, fashion is a wonderful playground for creativity and emotion, but it also has a huge impact on the climate crisis and has exacerbated social inequalities around the world. Catherine, can you help paint a picture of fashion's impact on the environment? So from our kind of a recent piece of work that we've done,
1: we've seen that the fashion and textile industry is actually the third highest emitter of greenhouse gases globally. So that accounts for about 5% of global emissions. And we also consume 98 million tonnes of non-renewable resources every year and around 93 billion cubic metres of water annually. So across the EU and the UK, clothing is the eighth largest sector in terms of much we're spending but it's actually ranked fourth in terms of its impacts on the environment so only housing transport and food have greater environmental impact and i guess it's really to understand it it's looking at the model of the industry so that linear take make dispose model also when you couple that with increased consumption over the last 20 years and also decreased utilization of clothing so we're using clothing for almost half as much time as we were 20 years ago you can really see why we've got these huge impacts. And it's really putting pressure on our planet's environment, our natural resources. But as you said, it's having really severe negative social impacts, and those can be linked to climate change, but also that race to the bottom in terms of pay, working hours and safety for garment workers, as the price of clothing has decreased as well over the last 20 years. And I guess going back to that linear model, we see impacts across the whole product lifetime. So some of the biggest carbon and water impacts are really coming from that raw material and production phase of a product's lifetime. But we can also see around 25% of impact of our products coming from the use phase. So how we as consumers and citizens kind of care for our clothes and also how long we keep them for. And then, I guess, at the end of a product's usable life, we can really see that huge waste footprint the industry has. So, in the UK alone, we collect around 620,000 tonnes annually of used clothing. But then, you know, another 332,000 tonnes are going into the bin. So, that's going
0: directly to landfill and incineration. They're really wide ranging impacts. And even if we zero in on just one of the hundreds of topics that, Fashion legislators are looking at if we zoom in on microplastics, you know, we've seen microplastics appear from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. This is incredibly broad how far fashion reaches. But those statistics you shared, as helpful as they are, don't paint the entire picture, do they? Because pinning down fashion's impact actually really difficult without brand cooperation now fashion revolution carries out an annual transparency index where it ranks brands based on the sustainability data they share publicly carrie do you want to tell us what are some of the challenges with understanding fashion's impact and why is transparency so important for accountability
2: Thank you, Bella. Yes, I mean, it's true that transparency is really as vital now as it was when I had the idea for Fashion Revolution almost 10 years ago now, following the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh, when it was really clear that brands had no idea what their relationship was with that factory complex. And so much is still unknown about our clothes, both upstream and downstream And transparency is important because if we have this public disclosure of credible, comprehensive, comparable information, not just about supply chains, but also about business practices and the impact on workers and their communities and the environment, this is really crucial to starting to drive the systemic change we need to see. As you mentioned, we have an annual Fashion Transparency Index at Fashion Revolution, And the aim of this index isn't really transparency in and of itself. It's to incentivize more disclosure so that we can better scrutinize what these brands and retailers are doing and hold them to account, as well as showcasing good practice. And Fashion Revolution finds that major brands are continuing to be more transparent about their policies and their commitments compared to their results and their impact. And if we don't have the information, it's very hard to drive impact. So we need these big fashion brands and smaller ones to embrace meaningful transparency um, about their impact and their outcomes. And I think you just mentioned microplastics. We need to know about the impact because good intentions don't always produce good results. And we need to make sure we're not replacing one problem with another. And I've been doing a lot of research over the last year into cellulosic microfibres, and we're finding sort of, you know, 70% of the fibres we found in our sediment research were from, from cotton, blue and black cotton, potentially from our genes. So a lot of these toxic chemicals mean that these cotton and cellulosic fibres aren't breaking down in the environment. So we really need, need a lot more research as well.
0: And I think, like you said, the important part for this particular conversation is up until this point, disclosure has been voluntary and there hasn't really been much regulation until very recently over what metrics brands need to be reporting, what the methodology is to report those metrics. And therefore, like you said, we haven't really been able to compare. I mean, one that struck me from the most recent fashion transparency index was that 85% of brands don't disclose their product volume, so the amount of units that they're actually making every year. And we have this whole big conversation happening in fashion at the moment around degrowth, this managed reduction of the economy to bring it in line with planetary boundaries. And that really links to what Catherine was saying earlier about right now, we have a linear model of take, make, waste, dispose. And we're moving towards a more circular model as a route to degrowth But if we don't have this data, if we don't have this transparency that you're talking about, we can't really see how far we're progressing. Now, as we've mentioned, sustainable fashion legislation has been ramping up in recent years and the EU has played a big role in that. Lisa, can you run us through some of the key developments in EU policy and what they mean for fashion brands?
3: Just like in context, the EU has a programme called the Green Deal, where it pledged to go carbon neutral by 2050, but purely out of necessity. But also Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU commission, just recently in Davos set the goal that the EU wants to become the green champion of the world. So because of that, there will be a whole array of new directives and legislations coming to all of the industries, especially for the fashion industry, who is not very well versed in engaging on policy in the EU level. It will be quite a hard hit for the big brands and the small brands.
0: And can you tell us in a little bit more detail about some of the changes coming from the sustainable and circular textile strategy, but also maybe some of the places where individual EU countries are going it alone and pushing that a little bit further?
3: If you look at the EU textile strategy, um, you can read it a little bit like a crystal ball of what the EU is looking into it and what they are prepared to do. And one of the top three points is trackability and traceability. So it's kind of like Instead of waiting that the fashion industry, small and big industry partners are going to on their own disclose where and how and with whom they're producing. Now it will get fiercely enforced through certain legislations. And one of them already starts is the so-called CSR, the Corporate Sustainability Responsibility Directive which basically just says is that you have to disclose your supply chain and also prove that you don't violate human rights. If you can't, you won't be allowed to trade in the EU. That actually will start next year. It will go through the parliament mid of this year. It will start with the first top 50 industries in Europe and it will become mandatory for SMEs, for small, medium-sized enterprises by 2026. So the speed and the pressure, which will now come from top down, will be quite hard. And in context of the EU bubble, which is always a little bit, okay, uh, that's the thing when we work in democracy, it's like, it will take a long time, but the speed will be for, especially the fashion industry, kind of mind-boggling.
0: We spoke recently about what France is doing. They've got their anti-waste and circular economy law that's having a phased rollout at the moment. They're working on extended producer responsibility, which is what we call EPR. But there's lots of Very specific actions that brands need to take in the short term, as well as these more kind of structural, systemic, long term changes. Just going to run through a couple now. From January 2023, it is forbidden to destroy unsold goods. That's a practice that got a lot of heat in the media over recent years when brands were found to be burning luxury goods, for example. Labels on garments will need to include the percentage of recycled material by weight, details about the future recyclability of the products, the presence of harmful or hazardous substances, a warning about microplastic shedding if the garment contains more than 50% synthetic fibers by weight and traceability information as far reaching as the country of origin for various steps of the manufacturing process and not just the finished garment. Now, Shamik, I want to come to you next. What has the UK been doing about sustainable fashion legislation?
4: Given the regulations that we now see in the EU and also nowadays from the US side related to UFLPA, I think there is a lot more action going on. UK, I think we are seeing quite a few brands getting interested, but they're just getting started to get a strategy in place internally. There's uh, still a lot of work to be done in really getting the work started with the suppliers because for this you really need to incentivize and work with the supply chain a lot because getting a data about a product and product specific material movement takes a lot of effort and time given the timelines that we've heard about just now 2023-2026 it's really a tall order for many of the fashion brands globally and also specifically to the UK I think most of them are just getting started. So I think it will take a lot of strategic intent and focus.
0: You mentioned the US there. Obviously, as you said, the UK is lagging behind the EU a little bit in terms of legislation. But the US has had this very fast turnaround, where it suddenly looks like it might be a bit of a leader, specifically around garment worker rights. Do you want to tell us about some of the key pieces of legislation that are either passed or pending that have come through the U.S. in the last sort of 18 to 24 months?
4: The most commonly referred one is the UFLPA, which is the Uyghur Forced Labour Control Act. I think that is putting a lot of pressure and that is not only on the fashion industry, but also on electronics and a few other industry also, because this is leading for customs authorities to hold back shipments at the ports of entry and this is impacting a lot of people and the business.
0: I suppose in some ways the US could be a sort of blueprint for the UK in terms of the speed of turnaround and maybe the EU is an indicator of what kind of turnaround we need. A couple of the other US legislations that we've seen coming through California restricted single use plastics. It also passed Senate Bill 62, guaranteeing a minimum wage for garment workers. Then we had New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand bringing through the Fabric Act, which tried to bring that Senate Bill 62 garment worker protection up to the federal level. And we also have the New York Fashion Act. So lots going on in the US that could point to the future for the UK. But do you want to just explain, Shamik, why it's so important for UK businesses, especially post-Brexit, to be paying attention to what's happening on the global stage and not just domestic regulations?
4: So first of all, I think uh, as the regulations shows that I think once it starts happening in one key part, it starts getting replicated across the globe. I think it will be coming in The UK also very soon, uh, given that uh, you still uh, UK is doing so much of trade with you still second part is I think most of the UK brand are selling into the EU markets and the US markets and in with respect to that, you will need to be compliant to these trade regulations as well as the. Generally, you should be well prepared with your anti-greenwashing there. So you need a lot of data to be collected. So it's already quite late. I think they should act very, very soon because getting the full data from your supply chain easily will take you at least two to three years.
0: Catherine, I want to come to you next because in lieu of regulation in the UK, RAP has been trying to mobilize the private sector. Tell us about the Textiles 2030 initiative.
1: Yes, yeah, so at RAP, we run the Textiles 2030 Voluntary Agreement, which is an initiative. So it's a it's a private public initiative that brings together policymakers and businesses to really try and tackle the issues that we're talking about and track, measure and track progress on targets. So yes, yeah, so we have set targets for the UK um, fashion and textile sector to reduce. Um, their carbon impact by 50% by 2030 and their water impacts by 30% by 2030. And we bring together the full textile sector, so from your brands and retailers to the reuse and recycling sector, as well as sort of circular business model providers, trade associations and academia, as well as kind of government on board. So we um, have a, a footprint tool that our, our signatories use to track and measure their progress. The brands and retailers that are signed up to Textiles 2030 actually cover around 62% of the textile products that are placed on the market in the UK. So we've really got quite a big critical mass um, of businesses really working towards the same targets, working out how to measure their scope three emissions um, and collectively coming together to kind of overcome challenges and barriers. And I guess we have some really key focus areas on how we're going to reduce those impacts, focusing around circularity. So get an agreement on, you know, what is designing for circularity? How can we design products to be durable to extend their lifetime? And how can we design them to be recyclable? And also how can we include as much recycled content as possible? We also are looking at how we can kind of scale up circular business models in the UK. So, you know, what are the barriers for brands and retailers at the moment? And then our third area is around closing the loop on materials. So how can we Bring the whole sector together upstream and downstream to really close the loop on materials in the UK. So looking at the collecting and sorting infrastructure, but how that then connects to global fibre to fibre recyclers. And I think we take this target measure act approach, as you mentioned, in lieu of legislation currently in the UK, a voluntary agreement like this can really catalyse the industry to start taking that action, but also start preparing them for policies that
0: might be coming in in the EU. Lisa, you often refer to the 27 EU member states as your 27 children. How do you shepherd them towards consensus and how might we replicate this on the global stage?
2: Yeah,
3: and I wanted to say like with absolute respect that like, of course, this is like the advantage in the EU. I want to celebrate this is like that, like the diversity and heritage and culture we have with those 27 different members. Is a huge potential, especially you know working in a cluster system that can, makes us even more resilient and also competitive. But of course, it requires a lot of coordination. and that's the thing is especially for the fashion industry, there has been a lack of cross industry coordination. Other industries do like they have organised lobbyists and interest groups who are constantly in Brussels and engage with policymakers to you know have an open door and open discussions are like look because the policymakers they do have to make policies with or without the industries it's their job and we do have a lot of frankly useless policies because they were made without consolidation with the industries and that is really what has to be avoided now is because We don't have the time to play the ping pong between the policy makers and industries. We have to work together. So that means the fashion industry has to consolidate and work together in a culture where collaborations is not a part of the culture, where working together towards innovation is not a part of the culture. I worry that for this industry, it might be really, really difficult. So with Climate Kick, we are the co-chair of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. So we are co-chairing the Innovation Pavilion at COP. And one of the topics we are looking into it is simply that our challenge is by 2050, we have to close 10 billion people on a climate and sustainability agreeable standard. That is the overarching issue. And the question is if the current fashion industry can actually do that with a lack of a huge lack of consolidation, a huge lack of digital skills, a huge lack of understanding how to engage with policy and the innovation actually comes from complete different industries. And the level of pressure which will come on the EU level might mean that a lot of brands simply want a wife so it will be quite interesting who will actually be the game changers in the fashion industry
0: Mm, and one potential contender we have on this podcast with us, Shamik, you are a big proponent of traceability as the key to compliance for a lot of these regulations, but also the key unlock to shifting those mindsets to fashion behaving differently, being more efficient. Can you tell us firstly, what is the difference between transparency and traceability? Because those two terms have been thrown about a lot in this podcast. And secondly, what are some of the challenges for brands seeking supply chain traceability?
4: Sure. And I think I will also add one more thing to that, which is trackability. That will, I think, complete the circularity loop also. So if you are a fashion brand, you should be able to know where your source of all your raw materials to the final product is. So effectively, we call it fiber to garment or source to garment kind of a journey. And that is what we call traceability. And once you know this journey, and if you are able to Share this information with your consumers or your retailers. That is what we call transparency because you now are able to communicate. Now, once all of the steps you are doing is pre sales process, once the consumer has bought your product, you also want to ensure that the product is tracked, uh, which means that uh, who has been the first buyer because that same product may come for recom through re commerce platform for repurchase or it can be recycled or reused in different formats so you also need to know the trackability of that product which means who all has used how many times it has been used so that the full value of the product is captured it has to have a very strong support from the board and the executive team because it's a significant transformation because most of the fashion companies have typically optimized their business for profit. So this means that you have to now deal with your suppliers and the supply chain, which does not only talk about cost, cost and cost, but you have to now speak with them about cost, sustainability, footprint, and the quality of the product because you want the product to be made for long-term use also.
0: And when brands have that oversight of their supply chains, it's also a lot easier for them to guarantee human rights A lot of the EU legislation that's coming into play focuses on environmental impacts, but social justice is also a crucial part of sustainability in fashion. Carrie, what is Fashion Revolution doing on this front? I know you have a new campaign out at the moment.
2: Yes, um, I mean, you're right. We talked earlier on about the EU's textile strategy, but that strategy is missing out some of those key human rights aspects from its focus. And we have to see the environmental and social sustainability is two sides of the same coin, because really, however sustainable the materials are, our clothes can't be sustainable if they're made by workers, you know, often marginalised women of colour who are trapped in poverty, and who, as a result of these low wages, are often forced to send their children out to work at an early age. And at the moment, there is no legislation ensuring a living wage for garment workers, and brands just aren't doing enough In last year's Fashion Transparency Index, which we we published in July, 96% of the major fashion brands still don't publish the number of workers in their supply chain paid a living wage, and nor do they disclose whether the labour costs are ring-fenced within price negotiations. And research has shown us there's around a 45% gap at the moment, between what workers take home and what will constitute a living wage. So Fashion Revolution at the moment is leading a Europe-wide coalition called the Good Clothes Fair Pay Campaign. It's a European citizens initiative which is demanding living wage legislation, which we really urgently need to see. If the proposal is enacted, this legislation will require Brands and retailers which have garments passing through the EU, so that would include the UK brands who are exporting a lot of of fashion to the European Union, to assess the wages in their own supply chains and start to put plans in place to close that gap and publicly disclose their progress. And the Good Clothes Fair Pay campaign needs one million signatures by July 2023 in order to be considered by the European Union policymakers. And anyone with a European Union passport, it doesn't matter where you live, can sign that now. That's at um, goodclothesfairpay.eu.
0: And perhaps this is somewhere where the UK could lead if it did start to implement sustainable fashion legislation, bringing together environmental and social impacts. That link between environmental and social impacts is really important as we move towards a low carbon economy which is what we call a just transition, that concept, which, as we've said, has been largely overlooked in policy. Activists often say that policymakers in the global north need to listen more closely to the communities affected by their decisions. In the case of fashion, this often means workers and manufacturers in the global south. And traceability, transparency, trackability are all crucial to that, because how can you address those communities affected and amplify their voices in policymaking decisions if you don't know who they are and where they are. Lisa, what else do you think is missing from the conversation around sustainable fashion legislation? I think the
3: biggest issue what we have in the fashion industry is the enormous amount of overproduction. The numbers officially say on average 30 to 40 percent, but we know it's far, far more. As much as I guess it's important to talk about recycling, repair, and resale, the biggest impact we can make on actually tackling overproduction, and in order to do that, this is linked with digitization, trackability, traceability of the supply chain. So those things will go hand in hand. And the other big issue, and you can see that as a Green Deal EU industrial plan, is bringing manufacturing closer. To where it's actually sold and consumed, not only to reduce the carbon footprint of transportation, but also like to increase the skills and understanding how things are actually made.
0: Catherine, any final thoughts from your side?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we have touched on it and we've touched on that concept of degrowth, but yeah, I do think that all these actions that we're taking really need to reduce consumption because there's no point in us you know, making more durable products, making products that are repairable and recyclable if we still consume more and more of them. So yes, just really putting that focus on how these actions that we want the industry to take are actually going to reduce overproduction, like Lisa said, but
0: also overconsumption as well. Lovely. A huge thank you to everyone for your time and insights. Loads of food for thought there to people listening at home you can keep up to date with what the eu is doing to make fashion more sustainable by visiting the website or following the #RefashionNow hashtag for listeners in london or those visiting be sure to check out the exhibition on sustainable fashion and the circular economy that will be launched later this month at the 12-star gallery at Europe House in SW1. All details available on the European Delegation website. But for now, goodbye and stay tuned for the next episode of London Calling You. Reviews, as always, very welcome. Thank you for listening.